My name is Josh McLean. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my privilege to be able to open God's word for us this morning. Today we're going to be finishing out chapter 4. If you got the black hardback Bible in front of you, that's page 1189. You might notice a little bit of a shift in the prayer that I just prayed. I, I ended the prayer with a portion of one of my favorite prayers out of this book called The Valley of Vision. Uh, you might think, well, Josh, he's a professional prayer, and uh, that's not necessarily true, although I guess I'm getting paid to pray right now. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm very good at it. But what I often find is that I just need to pray the scriptures, and I'll do that. Oftentimes, I'll, I'll just pray a little bits of the Valley of Vision, and it, it's been helpful. Um, if you want more information about that particular book, you can check it out. I want to take a moment after that long advertisement to dismiss Hubtown Kids. If they, have they already left? No, just some of them. Some of the eager ones. They have dispersed already. So the rest of them were wondering if they were going to get to go. So if you're in a Blue Station or Gray Station, you can come forward now. Uh, here's what you're going to be learning about this morning. In the Blue Station, they're going to be hearing the story about the servant king, Jesus washes feet. It's there at the Last Supper. That's the blue station this morning. Be sure to ask a kid. Again, I mentioned last week, I was so encouraged to hear that uh, our brother Brandon had been asking a, a kid. It was really sweet to hear. They didn't know the answer. He was disappointed. But he still asked, and that was really cool. Um, Grace Station, they're learning the answer to this question. What do justification and sanctification mean? What do justification and sanctification mean? Maybe you'd ask more if I didn't give you the answer, so I'm not going to ask. We're just going to move right along. Um, which, by the way, you might say, hey, Josh, how did you get so confused this morning? Well, because I pulled a chuck. I had, all, uh, I had more than one loop in my Bible, and I looked at the wrong one, and it said that it was time for me to go up, and I didn't look at today's. That was a shameless plug to read the, the correct loop. Uh, I'm not as skilled as Chuck. He doesn't make those mistakes. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we, we're not all perfect. This morning we're going to be reading out of Hebrews chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at verses 14, 15, and 16. But before we go to that, I want to just pick up where we left off last week in verse 13. You don't have to look back at it. Just listen and think about the, the meaning, what's being said here. And no creature is hidden from his sight. No creature is hidden from his sight. Speaking of the Father, the one that sustains you right now the one that created you for a purpose, the one whose word has come to you to varying degrees. It says, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. When we read Hebrews chapter four, verse 13, we naturally get a sense of fear. It's almost as if there's a likeness to the boogeyman here. You can't hide from him. He knows where you're at. Or maybe the scary part of Santa Claus. He knows what you're thinking. He knows if you're asleep, bad or good. That's one of the scariest things I've ever heard in my life. He sees me, but I don't see him. Furthermore, we have to, this father... This person in Hebrews 4.13, we are naked and exposed and we are going to have to give an account. That's a very, very scary thought. So what are we to do? What are you tempted to do in those moments? Are you tempted to run? Are you tempted to hide? You say, but it says you can't hide, but I still want to hide. 
Can we face the righteous judge on our own to whom we must give an account? It's almost as if this passage is intentionally scaring us. And I think it, in a sense it is, but it's not left alone. On the heels of this command that we should be afraid and that we should recognize that nothing is hidden from God and we will have to give an account. On the heels of that, we hear a surprising response. It's there in verse 14 and following. Let's read it together. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us or with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, it is shocking that you, the one who sees me, the one who knows everything about me, the one I cannot hide from, that you would not lessen your holiness. You would not descend or condescend in some sort of a manner that would divorce you from the need for reverence when I'm in your presence. You have lost nothing of your character and your justice. And yet, you have provided a way for me, filthy as I am, to approach you. And you've invited me to do so confidently and continually. God, we pray that you would help us to understand that invitation this morning a little greater. That it would be a little more real to us. That when we approach you, when we even speak your name, that we would not do so irreverently. But none of the reverence would be lost. And only more added as we pray in Jesus' name. That's what we do right now in his name. Amen. You'll notice probably that these few verses that we've just read, verses 14, 15, and 16 of chapter 4, that they sort of serve as a conclusion to the challenge that's been given from chapter 3, verse 1, all the way up until the end of chapter 4. It serves as a conclusion to that. The exhortation, hold fast your confession. Don't stop believing, right? But it also serves to launch us into this extended look at Jesus who is now demonstrated, explained to be our great high priest. And this section, looking at Jesus as our great high priest, will continue from now, the end of chapter 4, all the way to verse 25 in chapter 10. It's a long, extended look at the great high priest. 
central to our understanding, important for us to, to really understand who Jesus is and as we consider him as being the high priest is understanding a little bit about the temple. And not just the temple, but not the great high priest, but the high priest, or often as the New Testament would respond to, or the old, the priest. The tabernacle, which later became permanent in the temple, was the place where the glory of God rested. The Shekinah glory rested there in the uh, holiest of holies. The courtyard surrounded the, the central structure there. It was sizable, both the courtyard and the, the edifice or the building or the tent. That tent divided into two rooms. The, the first that you would enter into would be referred to as the holy place. Around the room, various items and furniture used to worship God the way that he had described and prescribed for us to do for the Israelites. The second most inner room was the holy place, and it was separated from the, or the most holy place, that was separated from the holy place by a veil, a very thick curtain and inside that veil on the other side of that veil you would find the ark of the covenant with its lid the mercy seat fashioned like a throne room fashioned like a throne I should say there in the throne room and the high priest operated as the main representative between the nation of Israel and God or Yahweh his main job was to conduct the service that was necessary on the Day of Atonement. That's his main job. He had many other jobs. His main one was to make the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. That is the 10th day of the seventh month of every year. He would enter into the most holy place. He would pass through the veil and he would stand before God. He'd have made a sacrifice outside and he would bring the blood of that animal in. He would make a sacrifice for himself and for the people. He would pour its blood there on the mercy seat, on the throne, God's throne. This was a picture, this was a type of atonement both for himself and for the people concerning their sins over this last year. Now, not just anyone could enter into the tabernacle. In fact, the High priest was the only one able to enter into the holy place and he would only do that once a year and he had to follow exactly, precisely what God had said, both in the cleansing and preparation of himself and of the other utensils and even the sacrifice itself. And all of that signified both the holiness, the greatness, the otherness of God. When you put all these pieces together, gives a pretty clear picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice this, if the high priest, Aaron, or any of his descendants, if they entered into the holy place on the day of atonement and they had not obeyed the Lord in his preparations, if they hadn't done exactly as he had prescribed to them, if they were holding on to some sort of secret sin, they would have been struck down in the presence of God. We're not exactly sure why the scriptures don't tell us, but we do know that the high priest, when he would enter in as a part of his garb, he was instructed to have bells there on the bottom hem. Some would say, well, this was to remind both he and the others that were around that they needed to stay focused on the task at hand. 
And as he would move, that constant noise would remind him that he's entering into the presence of God. Maybe that's true. I'm sure it served at least in that way and maybe in others. Some would even argue that the bells were there on him because if he stopped moving, he would stop making noise. If he had been struck down by God, they would know that the priest had fallen. Now, we don't read this in Scripture, but there's also a legend or at least a tradition that a rope would be attached to the high priest when he walked in, and if the bell stopped and they gave it a gentle tug, and he didn't respond with another tug, that they would go ahead and drag him out because he had, in fact, died, being struck down in the presence of the Lord for disobedience, for not being righteous. Now, we don't know that to be true, but we, if that's what they did, actually, with the rope. But we do know that the sentiment or the purpose behind it was real. Even God would strike down Nadab and Abihu. Though they were not high priests, they were sons of the high priest. And they did not walk in holiness. They did not take seriously the commands of God, the preparations for the sacrifice. They defamed his name, and they were struck down. You might say, what does this have to do with Jesus? What does this explanation of both the tabernacle or temple and the high priest, what does that have to do with Jesus? Well, it has quite a bit to do. We are to be afraid. We are to be very afraid. But we're also to march right up to him. How are we to do that? What connection does Jesus have with our being afraid, but also with him inviting us in to confidently and continually draw near to the throne of God. Here's the main idea for this morning. The main idea. Because of our great high priests, or priest, Christians can confidently and continually approach the Father for our every need. Think about that. Because of our great high priest, Christians can confidently and continually approach the Father for our every need. I've got two questions for you this morning that really are answered by this text. We receive the answers, and I've developed some questions that these answers, well, address. The first one is this. How should we approach the throne? The scriptures say that we are to approach the throne. How are we to do so? Look at verse 16. Chapter 4 of Hebrews, there on page 1186, or 89, I should say. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Friends, brothers and sisters, we have been invited to confidently draw near the throne. What does it look like to have this sort of confidence? Is, is, it a, is it a smug look of disdain? Is it a feeling or sense of superiority that you've done what you need to do to come confidently to God? I know that if he checks my work, if he exposes me with his word, that he'll know that I am the real deal. Is that how you approach the throne confidently? Do you do it not necessarily in yourself, but at least in the fact that you understood the assignment and you followed the instructions exactly the way that he said? Can you then approach him confidently? The reality is that the confidence that we are invited to have is not a confidence that is anchored in and and, and anything we can say or do. It is a confidence that must be anchored in something outside of ourselves, and that is 
the person Jesus Christ. Where should your confidence come from? Where must your trust be located? Your confidence must be found located in Jesus, your great high priest. What does this passage indicate about Jesus that should bolster our confidence in him? Why? What's the supporting argument here? Have confidence in Jesus. Draw near the throne because of his work. How does that really connect? Why should we have more confidence in him? Well, one reason is this in verse 15, the first part. He sympathizes with us in our weakness. He sympathizes with us in our weakness. Look at chapter 2, verses 16 to 18. Just turn back one page. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself had suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He sympathizes with us in our weakness. He has the same sort of experience. He's been tempted like you have been in every way. The scriptures make clear in chapter 4. You may think of this sympathizing as mainly Jesus knowing how you feel. And in some small way, or great way, because he knows what you're going through, you've somehow been helped, and there is benefit in knowing that somebody else knows what you're going through, that they can sympathize with you, and that is at least in part what's being said here. But the main idea isn't that, hey, your life is hard, and Jesus knows. But it's greater than that. The point is that not only can Jesus sympathize with you because he's gone through the same thing, it's less about him knowing how difficult your pain has been and more about his victory in spite of walking the same path. He sympathizes with you. He's experienced everything that you've experienced and yet, 15 goes on in the second part, yet he's without sin. And so we're comforted, truly, by the fact that he knows what we're going through. But even more so, he's not stuck in the pit with us, but that he has overcome everything that we have lost to. Where we have been failing, he has been victorious. He was without sin. Without sin. It's interesting, we'll talk about this and our continued study of Jesus being the high priest all the way up to chapter 10. One of the ways that he is not just the high priest, but he's the great high priest, is that all of the other high priests before, they could sympathize with us in our weakness, and yet they could not sympathize with Jesus in that they were sinless. And yet Jesus now can sympathize with us because he's walked that path and he has been without sin. Perfectly obedient to the Father. Not just another wretch dying in the place of another, but taking our sinless, our sinfulness and giving us his righteousness. And what does it say? How do we know that this took place? Well, look at verse 14. It says, he passed into the heavens. He passed into the heavens. What does this mean? Well, it means that Jesus 
condescended, left heaven, added to himself a human nature, lived a perfect, sinless life, completely obeyed the Father in every way, died as a sacrifice on behalf of his people, was buried signifying that he truly did die and pay the price, resurrected because or proving that the Father accepted his work on our behalf, and now he's passed into the heavens. In a sense, fulfilling the type as the chief archetype, he has poured his own blood on the mercy seat, and now he's sat down. And you say, he's passed into the heavens. What does that mean? Well, just as the high priest would pass through the veil and do that atoning work, the the picture of propitiation, removing the sin of the past year, Jesus fulfilled that by passing not into the veil, not past the veil, but into the very presence of God the Father. He passed into heaven. And so we see why are we to have confidence What are we to have confidence in? Well, we're to have confidence in Jesus. Why? Because he sympathizes with us in our weakness. He's been tempted in every way, like as you have been and are, yet he is and was without sin. He's passed into the presence of the Father, and he was not struck down. But his work has been completed, never to make another sacrifice again. He's been accepted into the presence of the Father. Kind of completing that picture of what Jesus actually accomplished, we read in Matthew 27, verses 50 and 51. There Jesus on the cross has been crucified, bleeding, struggling to catch his breath. He takes a deep breath and he cries out with a loud voice and yields up his spirit. And at the moment of him yielding up his spirit, he wasn't actually killed. He laid his life down. But in that moment, what does it say happened? And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. From the top to the bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Jesus enters into heaven. He passed into the heavens And to make sure that this archetype, this chief picture is matched by what happens here on earth. The father demonstrating that the son has entered in and not been struck down, but rather made a way for us to confidently come in. He tears from the top to the bottom, signifying that a man has not done this, but that the father has done it. The son has accomplished it. So our confidence should be in the grace of the father and the perfection of the Son. Our confidence should be in the grace of the Father and the perfection of the Son. Now when we think about confidently entering into the holy place, confidently approaching the throne of grace, I want you to think about it holding two things in mind. Oftentimes when we consider these two things that seem to be diametrically opposed or at least at odds and that we could enter in and that God is also holy, we might or be tempted to lessen one to make that jump a little easier. Well, maybe God's not quite as holy or other or removed high above us as we initially thought. 
And so because he wasn't, because Jesus, let's, let's say he, he could get us up to this high, but he couldn't get us up to there, so let's, let's bring God's holiness down just a tad. You might be tempted to do that. Or you might be tempted on the other side to consider the reverence of God as being what it is as much as the scriptures declare it to be, and yet you think you can't confidently enter into God's presence because you don't see the, the power and the significance of what Jesus has actually accomplished. Let's not rob from the work that Jesus has done. Let's see and understand the holiness of God as declared in Scripture. Holy, holy, holy. He cannot look upon sin. He cannot have sin in his presence. And yet Jesus has cleansed us. And that's why he says in verse 14, let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast our confession. I love that word, hold fast. Oftentimes when you're reading the Bible, you might think, how do people actually know what that word was? I mean, obviously the Bible wasn't written in English. It was the New Testament written in Greek. How are we supposed to understand it? And were these people who wrote the dictionaries or the lexicons, did they, were they there? How did they know? Were these lexicons passed down? Well, one of the ways that we can know what words mean is by we can see them in context used elsewhere. That's how your kids learn to speak. They hear a word and they see an action. They sense an emotion and they begin to associate those things together. And we say, when mom said this, Use this particular word. This is what I was sensing her emotions were, and this is where we were going, and so they begin to categorize the things. We can do the same thing as we read other parts of the New Testament. We can see that word hold fast used here, and we can see, well, where else is it used in the Bible? And that will help us to understand. Well, we see this word hold fast. It's a really fun word to say in the Greek, and I'll probably mess it up, so I'm not even gonna try to say it. But we see it in Matthew 28, verse nine. The women, they see Jesus, resurrected, and it says that they came and they held him fast. They, they grabbed on. They held on. They didn't want him to leave. They'd just seen their Lord crucified. They saw him yield up a spirit after crying, it is finished. They felt the earth shake, and now they're seeing their resurrected Lord. Their hearts had been troubled, and now they see him and they hold fast. You can imagine what that looked like. But that word's used elsewhere. I think it's used like 46 or 47 times in the New Testament. So we have a lot of instances we can kind of understand what hold fast means. Another instance is where the lame man, he cling, that's been healed, he clings to Peter and John in Acts chapter 3. He holds fast to them. But really, that's not the way that this verb should be used. It is helpful to see these women and how they approached Jesus and how this lame man uh, connected with Peter. But I think it'd be more helpful, it's more of a likeness to look at Mark chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, where we see a Pharisee says, uh, the Pharisees are said to observe the traditions of their fathers. It doesn't just mean hold fast. It doesn't just mean to hold on to a person with your arms, pressing your face against their shoulder. It doesn't just mean that but it also means to hold fast or to, to hang on to an idea or to a body of doctrine as the Pharisees were doing. Similarly, in 2 Thess Thessalonians chapter 2, 
That same word is used as, a, as Christians are commanded to hold to certain teachings, the teachings of the apostle. That we're to hold fast to them. When we see those teachings, yes, be like the women. But you can't grasp an idea, but in your hearts and in your minds, we surely can. And so we've been commanded to hold fast to our common confession, our common hope, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is the high priest. He's the fulfillment of all that we've seen and read and was promised in the Old Testament. He is the embodiment of all of those things. And the same way that you felt about him 10 months ago, before the confusion, before the difficulty, before the persecution, Hebrew Christian, is the same way that you should respond to him now. Do not lose heart. Hold fast. Don't let go. Why? Because he is still the great high priest. He still knows what you've gone through. He's gone through it himself, and yet he was without sin, and he has passed into the heavens. One theologian said, we fear the throne of God as a judgment, but doubt it as a throne of grace. We fear the throne of God as a judgment, as a throne of judgment, but we doubt it as a throne of grace. Brother and sister, we must recognize that both are true. We see that nobody's hidden before him. There'll not be one sin unpunished. He sees everything. You've been laid bare. And yet there's still this invitation that the blood of Christ could be applied to you. That you too could claim the work of Jesus Christ that's been finished long ago. That you could come to the Father boldly. What an incredible shift. We go from be afraid, run away, to not just don't run away, but draw near. Think about that. What a shift. Be afraid. Okay, don't run. Draw near. We're to confidently, because of Christ, draw near the throne. But there's another clue or piece of instruction that we sort of miss in the English language, but it's there clearly in the Greek. Not only should we come to the Father, approach the throne of grace confidently in Christ, but we must do so continually. That's the second part of the answer. How are we to approach the throne? Confidently and continuously. Look at verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now hidden in that word draw near is this present active indicative which is an ongoing action. It means keep on drawing near. In the present, begin to draw near and don't stop drawing near. Continue to do that. Another way you could translate that is, let us constantly approach the throne of grace. For so many of us, we know, we addressed this last week, we've come to the Father for forgiveness of sin. When we first heard that there is the word of God that comes to us and it lays us bare and exposes us of our sin, but the gospel invites you into confession and trusting Jesus, we say, okay, of course, I'll come to the throne of grace and I'll repent of my sin. But the reality is, as Colossians 2 reminds us, the way that we come to the Father initially is the way that we continue to abide in his presence. We continue to confidently 
trust the work of Christ. Now, I don't know what took place. I don't know what the state of this group of Christians, this church was that first received the letter to the Hebrews. But perhaps in the persecution, they had had some doubts. Maybe some of their own weaknesses had been exposed. Maybe through these difficult times, they were fighting amidst themselves. Maybe in those moments, they became ashamed. And they thought, well, my sin was exposed long ago and I came to the Father and he did forgive me on the, because of the work of Christ. But I don't think I should do that now. The blood of Christ was effective back then, but it is not now. Maybe they felt that way. Maybe they felt they had gone too far. They had neglected their Lord too much. They had sinned too greatly. Maybe that's what they thought. And the command still came to them and said, don't stop drawing near to the Father. As we sang this morning, your sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Draw near and don't stop drawing near. Drawing near to God constitutes an ongoing aspect of the Christian's relationship with God. Regularly going to him, and without a doubt, the context here is in prayer. When you see your need, we talked about this last week, but when you see your need, where do you run to? When you come face to face with your own weaknesses, your failings, to whom do you run? The invitation is that we run to the throne of grace continually. Why? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Brothers and sisters, I don't know where you're at today, but I know that the need is great. There's not a one of us without a great need. Sometimes the temptation is that we just remove the need so that we don't have to find the answer. Maybe we like in our minds to pretend that God doesn't actually exist, that we'll not have to give an answer to anybody. Then if we could resolve, if that would be true, then it could resolve the great needs that we have. Brother and sister, there is a great need. We should come to the Father in order to find help for those needs, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's two questions that I think this text is asking or answering for us, rather. One, why should we have confidence in Jesus? Why should we have confidence in him as our great high priest? He sympathizes with us. He's without sin, and he's passed into the heavens, the scriptures tell us. But now we're to approach him in time of need, Jesus has passed through the heavens and now we can too through Jesus. And so what should we ask the Father for? Well, I think the scriptures make it very clear. I'm gonna give you a few things this morning. What should we ask the Father for? Number one, we should ask the Father for forgiveness. We should ask the Father for forgiveness. First John chapter one, verses eight through 10 say this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I think mainly this passage is written to Christians. 
those who are assembling together and saying, hey, we're Christians, we're followers of Jesus, this message is for you. Now, the principles still apply to anybody. There's not a one of us that don't have sin. And if you do, whether you're claiming to be a Christian or not, if you say that you are not a sinner, you are deceiving yourself. The truth is not in you. And it's also true of anybody outside the church, inside the church, Christian or non-Christian. If you confess your sins and claim the blood of Christ, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. That's true of all of us. But the context here is mainly, pointedly, for those who are walking in Christ. What are we to pray to God for? Of course, initially we come to him and we repent. We, he exposes our sin to us. He regenerates our hearts, allowing us to even see our sin and his holiness. And he calls us to repentance and faith and we do those things. But then we continue to do those things. As you have received Christ the Lord, so walk in him. How did you become a Christian, Christian? You began to agree with God about your sin when he showed it to you. How do you walk? How do you continue to walk with Christ, Christian? When he exposes your sin, publicly or privately, you agree with him about your sin and you repent and you trust him for grace. You continue to trust that he, the high priest that saved you initially, is continuing to save you. The one who justified you then is still justifying you now. You are, in fact, justified. Each of us, brother and sister, we have sin. We cannot hide it. Each of us need grace from the Father continually. And so we are to go to him in prayer, confessing and asking him for forgiveness. And the promise is, because of the great high priest, whose blood is effective, settled, he's seated, he will. We're to do so confidently. Why? Because the blood has affected our propitiation. We're to do this Confidently and continually. Why? Because though Jesus' righteousness ex extended cannot be taken away. And our communion with the Father really can't be hindered. In prayer, we boldly come to the Father for forgiveness. Now, this is the most common prayer that we think of. The prayer of forgiveness. And yet, there's one life that I can think of that is marked more than any other life by prayer. And yet this person never sinned. And so we come to the Father. We confess our need. We come boldly before the throne in the name of Jesus for forgiveness of sin. But that's not the only thing that we have need of. It is the most, but it's not the only. What else should we pray for? What else do we have need of? Our needs are many. Forgiveness is one, but strength is another. Number two, strength. I love the story. I probably quote it daily, at least weekly, to myself and to others. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. The Apostle Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth, and he says, <laughs> I don't want you guys to be ignorant. I don't want you to be unaware of something. I want you to know that we've been afflicted. We've experienced some tough times in there in Asia. We were... We were so utterly burdened, he says, beyond our own strength that we despaired of life itself. We got to the point where we really just, we, we kind of thought death might be easier and maybe death was really close. That's how bad it was. We had zero strength. Maybe you can relate. Maybe not today, but maybe you remember a time. 
Or maybe you just need to hold that in your pocket because there'll be a day. But what does Paul say? He said, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. We felt like God had determined that we would die and that he would leave us. But what does it say? But that, all of these difficulties, all of these struggles, they were to make us rely not on ourselves, not on our own strength, but they were there, they were given to us, we were afflicted, we experienced these difficulties so that we would learn to depend on God who raises the dead. Even if we died, even if we did receive the sentence of death, we know that God allowed us to walk through that so we would learn to depend on him. And what does he say in verse 10? He doesn't leave these guys hanging. They're reading this letter and they're like, oh my goodness, our sweet brother Paul, our dear, his dear companions, look at what they've faced. And yes, God's teaching them, but where does it end? How does, how does the story go? Well, verse 10, Paul says, He, the one who is not weak, the one whose strength never fails, God the Father, He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us, He says. He did, and He will. Paul says, On Him we have set our hope, He will deliver us again. And He says, You must also help us. How must you help us? Paul says, how can you help us, Corinthian church? You can help us through prayer. We see here an apostle depending on the Lord for strength during adversity. And we can imagine that this dependence was at least in part expressed through prayer. God, it seems as if you've just left us to die. I've got nothing left. I've got, I got, I got nothing. Where are you? In that moment, God says, you know where I'm at. I'm right here, and I'm sustaining you, and I'm so glad, Paul, that you've come to the end of your own strength. Now you know where it really ends. There's no farce here anymore. You're not confused. You know how weak you are, and now you know how strong I am. But we also see that this, there's a request that Paul gives to the church, the Corinthians. He's saying, hey, pray, pray for us. Pray for strength. Pray that the, the work, the adversity that we're facing and the victory that we have in Christ's strength through this, that it'll turn a lot of people to understand and believe the gospel. Let me ask you, how do you respond when you face adversity? There's lots of options for us today. Now, none of them are as good as the great high priest. and None of them are as powerful and strong as the throne of grace. And yet we're still tempted to go to amusement. We're still tempted to be numbed in the face of our difficulty. We're tempted to go to a bottle or to pop a pill or to watch another episode. And yet, in those things we neglect that the greatest strength calls or is given to those who are going through the greatest trial when they approach the throne of grace. I want you to think about this for a moment. Why does he use the word throne? Why does he use the word throne? Well, because it seems as though, at least in part, an allegory, picture, that God sits on a throne. Who's the most powerful man in the land? 
If we were to find ourselves walking through the, the land of Israel under the, the reign of King Solomon and we found ourselves in a really, really, really difficult predicament, who would you appeal to? Who would you go to for wisdom? Who would you appeal to for strength, for defense? If appropriate, if available, you would probably want to go to the wisest, kindest, strongest man in the land, Solomon. And in a similar way, that's what we've been invited to. But in a much grander, greater way, we've been invited to the throne of grace. The creator of all, the sustainer of all, the Holy One has invited you to come into his presence boldly, confidently, continually, and to do what? To ask for strength in time of need. I referenced a moment ago, he is strong, but he's also wise. And so when we approach the Father, what do we approach in need of? How about wisdom? The scriptures make it clear in James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. How can we go to the Father How can we go to our creator and ask him for wisdom? We go in the name of Jesus. And when we do, he promises, promises that he'll give to you wisdom liberally, the King James says, generously, overflowingly, without reproach. It's a promise from God. So many decisions that we make throughout the day and throughout the week. Countless decisions that you've had to make even today subconsciously. Where do you turn? Where do you gather your wisdom when you face a difficult situation? When you need wisdom outside of yourself or outside of what's clearly been given both through community and God's word, where do you go? The invitation is for us to approach the throne. He gives us wisdom liberally. How about this last one, or this uh, second to last one, resources? Resources. When we have need, is it appropriate for us to go? Physical needs, is it appropriate for us to go to the Father and ask Him for our needs? Some of you are a little bit too spiritual for this, right? You're a little too much of a Gnostic. There's the spiritual realm and there's the physical realm. And the physical realm, God doesn't really care about, doesn't really even come into contact with in some sort of a way. That's an ancient heresy. For you to say that God doesn't care about what you're experiencing is not true. You might say, well, does God really care about the difficulties that I'm facing paying my rent? Does he really care that I've been a little bit cold lately or or that my body hurts right now or that I just, I'm hungry that I just don't have the friends that I feel like I need, the support that I want? Does God really care about those things? And the reality is that he does. The scriptures make it clear in Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 13. Listen as Jesus teaches. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he, the friend, will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. 
I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Because he doesn't stop. Because he keeps asking. Oh, come on. Get out of bed. I know it's cold, but I I need your help. Come to my aid. Come to me. Help me. Verse 9. And I tell you, Jesus says, ask. Keep asking. Keep approaching the throne. And it will be given to you. Seek. Keep looking for it, and you will find. Knock, don't stop knocking, and it will be open to you for everyone who keeps asking will receive, and everyone who seeks finds, and and the one who keeps knocking, it will be opened. You say, is that only a reference to forgiveness of sin? No, absolutely not. How do you know? Well, keep reading. He says, he changes the scenario here. What father among you? If his son asks for a fish, well, instead of giving him a fish, give him a snake. Any any of you fathers like that? Or what if your son asked you for an egg? He's hungry. He wanted some breakfast. He wants an egg. Would you give him a scorpion? Which one of you are like that? He argues from the lesser to the greater. He says, if you then who are evil, broken, fallen creatures, know how to give good gifts to your children, if you know how to do that, How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? In our carefulness to avoid the prosperity gospel, is it possible that we have avoided the gospel? Is it possible that we've somehow thrown the baby out with the bathwater? That God only cares about forgiveness and doesn't care about you and the needs that you have outside of salvation? That's not true. Why? In the world, do the things that you like to eat taste good? Why has he allowed you to experience any of the good things that you have in your life? Not only is he good because his faithfulness and his steadfast love to us is extended to us chiefly in salvation through the blood of Christ, but he has also opened up the heavens and said, you are my children. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus, I want you to come to me and I want you to ask. And I want you to be blessed because I'm a good father. Fathers here, would you not give, do you not enjoy blessing your children with big things that they really, 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 really need to have and then other things that they don't really need to have? How much more so, if you're like that, does our heavenly father not? One of the scariest places to be is in the presence of a king who despises you. Or in a the presence of a king that you don't really know how he thinks about you or what he feels about you. It's been said, who is the one person that can pound on the door and incessantly request that the king get out of bed and give a glass of water or tell a bedtime story, if not a child? We've been invited into the presence of the king. We've been invited in not because of us, but because of Christ. Why do we come before the throne? We come for forgiveness. We come in the name of Jesus for forgiveness. Why do we come before the throne? We, we come to him because we need resources, because we need strength and many other things. But I think there's one thing that sort of related to this resource piece. We can ask God for things that we need, and it's Number five, the final one, it's communion. Do you know that you can come to the Father 
for communion. Some of you might have such a high view, or, or should I say a terrible view of your own sinfulness that you think that God, though he has forgiven you, still despises you. And that he really doesn't enjoy fellowship with you. Some of you are tempted to believe that. And this is a lie from Satan. His love is extended to us and demonstrated not just in forgiveness, but in an invitation to commune with him. I love Psalm 84. The psalmist got it. He says this. I want you to think about it. If you want to read this along with me, you're welcome to do that in your Bible. But I would also just invite you to to listen. Listen to the words of this psalm. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself. Where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, Selah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God and Zion. O Lord of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of, God, o Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. When you hear that psalm, what do you think? Do you think that we can only enter into his presence in order to receive forgiveness and nothing else? Now go your way. Don't stay too long. Or is the invitation for us to not only receive forgiveness because of the work of Christ, but for us to come to him in our need and to ask it in the name of Jesus? If I were to think of a song or a hymn that really encapsulates the main idea of this text this morning, it would be this song or this hymn here. It goes like this. Sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer that calls me from a world of care and bids me at my Father's throne make all my wants and wishes known. In seasons of distress and grief, my soul has often found relief and oft escaped the tempter's snare by thy return, sweet hour of prayer. Sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer, the joys I feel, the bliss I share of those whose anxious spirits burn with strong desires for thy return. With such I hasten to the place where God my Savior shows his face and gladly take my station there and wait for thee, sweet hour of prayer. Sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer, thy wings shall my petition bear to him whose truth and faithfulness engage the waiting soul to bless. And since he bids 
me seek his face, believe his word and trust his grace, I'll cast on him my every care and wait for thee, sweet hour of prayer. How could God allow and even desire communion with me? How could God desire and even allow communion with you if you're in Christ, if you've turned from your sin and placed your faith in Jesus humbly, he doesn't see your sinfulness. He sees the perfection of his son and he welcomes you into his presence. Before we close, and ultimately I'll close with a word of prayer. And that closing prayer will be ended with a few words. Those words are this. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. I want to just give you one last application. Some of you would say, or maybe all of us would say, I believe that my sweet hour of prayer could come a little more often. I could probably spend a little more time in prayer. But all of us probably pray at some point, most of us. Oftentimes we find ourselves praying before meals. And what are we doing there? We're in faith, receiving this blessing, asking God to actually bless it, and we're thanking him for it. And we ask that blessing on the meal that we eat in the name of Jesus. Or maybe we are asked to pray in our life group. And we pray a thoughtful prayer, and in the end we rattle off, and in Jesus' name we pray. When, I want to challenge you. When you pray to the Father, when you acknowledge that you're coming into his presence and you're asking for anything, I want you to remember this, that his throne has not been lowered down. It's not been lessened in any way. But the way to it has been opened. And that way is by Christ. And in that way, because of that truth, when we pray, we pray in Jesus' name. Let's do that now. Father, we often forget how glorious you really are. Father, sometimes with frivolous emotions and actions, we'll call out to you in passing some mundane way, forgetting that we have entered into the throne room of God Almighty. Because the invitation is so free and generous, we're tempted to forget how holy you truly are. Father, let us not lessen or see you in any way demeaned. But as we approach your throne, would you allow your church to do so confidently and continually and with the mindset that our great high priest has purchased this he has invited us to pray to you, promising that you'll hear it. And even now, he prays with us. We ask these things according to his will and in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.